0: Wine Monk, Arizona Wine Podcast by Cody Vladimir Burkett. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Cody Burkett with the Arizona Wine Monk blog. I'm here with Michael Pierce from Saculum Cellars. Good afternoon. So we're here mostly talking about the One Stone Syrah, which is coming from down at Rolling View Vineyards, correct? Yeah, Cochise County in Wilcox. So it's Cote Routy style, correct? That's right. A
1: 94 Syrah, 6% Viognier co-fermented.
0: What's your personal history with the wine industry in Arizona?
1: Because not many people know who you are yet, I think. Yeah? I'm an Arizona native, actually, so I've been here my whole life aside from traveling around a bit. I went to NAU for an undergraduate degree where I started making beer and wine at home and I also got my dad uh, one of those awful home wine making kits and we made some wine that didn't really meet our needs I guess so we decided we would take some classes online at Davis to figure out how to make better wine and then we ended up at Washington State. So I got a formal education in wine but it wasn't really until I started working in the industry that I really understood what the heck was going on. So I harvested for a little bit, went to New Zealand Hawks Bay and then one in Oregon and then one in Tasmania and then back to Arizona where I was at Arizona Stronghold for four vintages and now I've been at Yavapai College for a full year so I teach the winemaking classes at the Southwest Wine Center and I have two brands that we've built up in the meantime since I came back to Arizona in 2010 and we've worked our way up to about a thousand case production
0: across two different brands and now I'm here. Excellent. So what's it like actually teaching the college? Do you find that there are people that seem to get things right off the bat? Are there difficulties in trying to relay the intricacies of winemaking to college audience?
1: Uh, it's tough learning to teach. One, because I, you know, I've thought about a lot of these concepts before, but until you bullet point them out and get a lecture ready to go, you have to be able to verbalize these ideas. So it's very much a learning process for me, how to, how to teach. As far as the students go, we kind of have students that run the gamut all the way from early 20s to late 50s and 60s, second, third career type people. Some people have already made wine and they're leaps and bounds above where I was when I was going to school. And then there's people who are completely green. They're learning some of the terminology for the first time. As far as theory goes, it's I find it really difficult to give students kind of a broad perspective of things. Especially the the students who come in kind of green. They want big teeth truce. You know, like this is how you always macerate, this is how you always barrel age, whatever the case may be. But in reality winemaking is just a series of stylistic choices. So it's important to teach students kind of a foundation of What's going on in terms of chemistry, microbiology, wine styles, what they want to see, what, what's your goals for this wine, what's your price point? You know, all these things kind of factor into any sort of winemaking decision. So there's really no way to just tell a student this is how you always do it because that doesn't exist. So I'm enjoying teaching. This is just now my second year going into it, so it's the first time I've taught the same class twice. So I've amassed some kind of lectures and some ideas on this specific curriculum. And I'm really looking forward to kind of doing this over the long period to to understand the best way to instruct students. Uh, A lot of times I'll go back after a lecture and say, shoot, I could have explained that a little bit better. And I I can just tell it's going to take me years, just as it did with winemaking. It took me years to, like, really understand my approach. It's going to take me just as long to figure out how to teach.
0: You spoke of uh, stylistic choices and challenges for, uh, for Arizona compared to your other experience with winemaking in New Zealand and Australia and Washington. What are the challenges that make Arizona unique versus these other places?
1: I think our biggest challenge is also one of the biggest things I enjoy about being in Arizona, and, th- and that is we are in complete uncharted territory in, in a lot of ways. Our vineyard, which is somewhat small, really, it's only 27 acres, which is large for Arizona size. Our, uh, we have 17 varietals on that 27 acres. So, I mean, within those 17 varietals, there's a a whole bunch of stylistic choices that we're trying to figure out what does really well. The benefit there is, as a winemaker, I don't have to make the same old thing. You know, I'm not working in a a region where there's this tried-and-true winemaking style, and, and I'm trying to kind of fit myself into this, you know, consumer expectation in terms of styles. So I think we have a lot of leeway compared to, say, Oregon Pinot Noir or New Zealand Merlot Chardonnay. I wasn't down in the New Zealand Semillon Blanc area. So that would be my first take on that question. As far as challenges unique to Arizona, of course spring frost. Uh, every year we find our faith when it comes April time to get through the, that frost period. The last two vintages have been specifically kind of outlined by how the monsoons played out. Right as our fruit started to ripen, the monsoons hit. So Arizona think people think Arizona too hot and too dry. The two biggest issues with gro- growing grapes, too cold, too wet. And that is the reality. Beyond those two weather factors, we have high pH soils. With the warm growing season, we end up with sugars that ripen real early. Hopefully you can kind of manage your crop load so you don't have pHs that are too high. And that's something we're definitely trying to dial in in our vineyard across 17 varietals. You have 17 varietals, you have 17 different types of plants that want to grow in a certain way in terms of canopy management, fruit load, all that stuff. So I would say those are
0: some of our specific growing challenges, monsoons, cold, and uh, high pH. I really think that the monsoons are going to have a major effect on what makes Arizona wine unique too. Would you happen to agree with that assessment or...? Oh, sure.
1: Um, Arizona's a vintage-specific state.
0: How they hit,
1: whether they hit early and and create this nice cooling-off period, and we get some nice physiological ripening, meaning nice phenolics, good color, or if they hit later and we might see some rot pressure, it's... In the five vintages I've been here, they've been all been so unique that it's hard to see a common vein. The only real conclusion that I've come is that Arizona's a vintage specific state and let's see what the next vintage has in store for us. So, so I absolutely think monsoons affect, how they will affect will play out year to year. It's been different every year. We have to have the rains. We can't turn them away in Arizona, especially with some of the issues with water availability that I think will determine the growth of the industry where we're growing down in Wilcox, we're growing amongst some other agriculture. and There have been some concerns brought up about water availability in the future and what that means in terms of irrigation zones and stuff like that and where we might be able to plant and not plant. So the monsoon rains, we're not going to send them away. We'll take them every time because we need the
0: water, but as a grower, it just wreaks havoc on us. So you said you list, you had 17 varietals. What are the 17 varietals that you're growing?
1: Okay, I uh, see. Whites, we have Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Malvasia, Viognier, Muscat, Pinot Gris. Uh, reds, we have three different clones of Syrah, three Cab Sav, Grenache, Tempranillo, Morvedra, Pinot Noir, um, Sangiovese, Petit Syrah. It'll come to me. Did I say Merlot, Cabernet Franc? I don't think you did say Merlot, actually. Okay, Cabernet Franc. So that's 16. And Zinfandel 17.
0: Uh, out of those seventeen, which would you say are the five best in your field? Which are the five that don't seem to do very well or are very very spotty? Um, on the white side,
1: Malvasia Bianca easily um, best canopy, best just kind of general vigor, best temperament, it needs the least amount of work. It just wants to be there and it doesn't overcrop and get crazy. We actually took this vineyard over, and it had a couple years of neglect. And after those couple years of neglect, the mature vines that were in place were in a whole disarray of, well, a whole variety of different conditions. But the Malvasia showed the best. It, it Without water, without pruning, it, it still was there. It was still setting fruit. I think that says something about the varietal and the state and the, the climate. Viognier does okay. you got to keep the sun off it. You definitely have to watch the how much crop you have. you got to watch pH on that one chardonnay does pretty well people always want to compare it to california chardonnay i don't know how the market will will do with chardonnay Uh, our muscat always does well that's an easy one for us to grow Um, so i would say of the whites we have those would be kind of the top four whites there for reds tempranillo does great Grenache does great both of those you have to kind of watch crop for different reasons Um, you have to set canopy in different ways for different reasons our cab, we have three different clones of cab. One of them doesn't do that great. One's kind of in the middle, and one's amazing. That one that's amazing, I think, uh, is a standout. And then we have three clones of Syrah in same situation. One's okay, one's not okay, and one's great.
0: Um, Which of the clones are uh, in the one stone?
1: 470 and a clone. We d- oh, okay. So both of these clones are actually – all of this m- fruit was the mature fruit from when we took the vineyard over in 2011. We've planted in that vineyard every year since. So we have now over 20,000 vines planted, and when we took it over, we had about seven. So we're, we're putting more vines in, and every year we'll have a new block come on, which is pretty exciting.
0: Are there plans to plant any new and different varietals there, or just stick with the 17 that are
1: No, there, um, there are a couple that we're on the fence about, or maybe it's on the other side of the fence. We just haven't thrown it on the other side of the fence yet. Um, Sauvignon Blanc's a tough one. Um, you need that crisp acidity just to kind of drive it through. It can be a good backbone in a white blend, I would say, and it can provide some nice crispness. I actually don't mind the Arizona Semillon Blancs. I tell you, consumers, though, expect something else because yeah. they, they've become used to New Zealand New and Z- California. Yeah, absolutely, and, and they have character that we just don't have, not that the grapes or the wines aren't that great. I just I don't think consumers understand them. So in terms of white, Albarino y- of any would be one that we'd add. In terms of red, there's two that I'm hoping to add, Graciano and Barbera nice. Uh, Graciano should retain the acidity and have some nice color. Graciano with Tempranillo and, and Grenache, some of the other things we have planted, I think would be a nice blending component. Right now we have 17 varietals. excited to have all of those, but those would be pr- probably the three that I'm looking at. Tanat, people really like Tanat. I think it has a nice depth that we don't see in, in some of the other reds. It would be another possible
0: varietal. And I have to say every Arizona Tanat I've had has just been beautiful. I mentioned this when I actually was talking to the ladies at Hobson Vines because it just seems to do well for sure in Wilcox. Obviously it does well in Sonoida, as evidenced by Calligan's sweeping the floor with his. Which I, and then the Dancing Apache Tanat is also quite lovely. I don't know if you've had that or not. But, yeah. Yeah.
1: It's yeah, it seems to do well. I think seeing it in the vineyard is very telling, and then you get to see it not only in the cellar, but the final fruit. But the things that n- want to be there in the vineyard always end up making the most balanced wines. It's You're not going to take an ugly vine that just struggles to be there, maybe gets frosted to the ground every third year. I mean, it, don't fight that battle forever. Find something that, that does well. Of course. With vines, you don't want to give it everything that, yeah. it, that it wants. There, there's a, a fine line there. It's kind of like children. If you
0: give them everything they want, they turn into spoiled brats.
1: Exactly. So you got to make them struggle just a little bit so they understand what that means and flourish in their own way.
0: So you, you spoke about the taking over the vineyard. Um, what is the history of Rolling View? Uh, it actually used to be
1: called Crop Circle. There was a, a Crop Circle label was a sister label to Echo Canyon. I I don't know the the years that they actually pulled production out of there, but there was a a winery as well down in Wilcox, which now Passion Cellars owns the winery itself that owns a production facility. And we took over the vineyard, which I'm very thankful that we had that opportunity. One, because it had established vines there in the first year, we could actually take a crop, which really helps kind of the financial outlay of starting a vineyard, which is extremely huge. And we've had it since 2011. We called it Rolling View Vineyard. The reason we called it Rolling View was my grandfather and great-grandfather before him had a corn farm in Nebraska, which was the Rolling View Farm. And when my grandfather died, my father sold his portion to his brother and purchased Rolling View Vineyard. So that's where that name comes from. It's from a family farm name.
0: So a lot of people comment when they come into my tasting room about your labels at Saculum Cellars. What goes into label design?
1: Well, I do them all myself. Uh, we have two brands, Saculum. I, I do the labels for Bodega Pierce. My dad does all the labeling and marketing for. You know, Saculum started off with some incubator fruit from California, meaning we didn't have a vineyard yet. We, there really wasn't access to Arizona fruit at that time, so we took some California fruit. I was more just amped to get fruit and make wine because I like making wine more than starting a business. But <laughs> you, yeah, but once you actually put all that money out, you realize you should probably get some money back in so you can do it again next year. Um, so we started this label called Saculum and it was going to be a special projects because you know the, the vineyard was didn't exist. Uh, we weren't necessarily gonna be working with the same fruit. And so I decided let's market it with kind of one-off labels. We'll do something different every time. And since then, we've started some programs with that. Uh, label And that will always be our kind of special projects label where I can do whatever I want in the cellar. Anything crazy that comes up like a co-ferment with Saran and, and Viognier. Also have our Cabernet Franc blend that we do that people like. Um, Bodega Pierce, um, we're going more for kind of moderately priced, trying to get some distribution out there. So Saculum's more towards the kind of $25 to $35 bottle range. And Bodega Pierce is more like 18 to 25 Now about the labels, uh, I know that was the question, Um, I just try and come up with something that I think showcases the wine, kind of the essence of the wine. It it takes me a long time. I I try and find influences somewhere. This specific uh, label I use two birds. The idea behind that is we had Viognier coming off in 2012. It was our first crop of Viognier. It was only about 300 pounds. It wasn't enough to make a barrel. So my dad called me and said, what do you want to do with that? And I said, well, let's pick it with the straw that's about to come off. We had two blocks of straw that were about ready. So two birds, one stone. We'll just ferment it together. That's where the name of the of the blend came from. That's why I call it One Stone. And as far as the design goes, I, I kind of like Japanese watercolor. Either watercolor or kind of the wood print type stuff that they do. And then the birds themselves that are on the label are actually sandhill cranes, which migrate over the Wilcox Playa every year. So they're the large migratory birds that kind of go over that area.
0: Have you noticed that there's been birders that are particularly keen on wine that come through the Tasting Room at Bodega Pierce, or do the birders seem to Ignore the wine industry down in Wilcox entirely.
1: No, they they come. They're looking for a good time. Every year, they have the wings over Wilcox. Yeah, people come for that. Also, Ducks Unlimited tend to have uh, some functions down there, and they'll go do the tasting rooms. I think a lot of people in the Cochise County area are happy to have those tasting rooms there. They're not a humongous presence. Yet, hopefully they will be, and they'll bring more people down there. I think people in Tucson are starting to hear about the tasting rooms. Just in the last three years, there's been kind of an explosion of uh, new tasting rooms down there. So hopefully we'll get the type of traffic that Sonoyta gets. Senoida gets considerably more than the Wilcox region right now.
0: What do you think in general in Arizona should we be planting overall?
1: Uh, oh, that's a loaded question, and I know. <laughs> In your I, opinion? I don't know yet. Valvasia, I think the white, and I think consumers would like that. I think it would be something that would set us aside uh, in the national market. Whether we grow good Chardonnays or good Viogniers or, or, or whatever the case may be, um, we'd be competing with a lot of other regions. Um, now, that's not the reason to plant something. If something's right, we need to plant it, but I think Malvasia has told us that it's right. Uh, as far as reds go, Spanish and Italian, southern Italian varietals seem to be doing really well, but people don't have those in the, va- in the ground right now as much. Uh, Cimarron has some, we're planting some here at the college. We, we had a whole Italian planting this last year in 2014. I'm not going to throw a red out there for definitive red, because I, I don't know it. Okay. A
0: sidebar to that question before we go on to talk about more about the college. Are there any grapes that aren't being grown in Arizona yet that you would like to see tried out here? Like, top two or three. Um, Sangrentino, probably. I think Rob planted some last year, but it's okay. again, five years out, before yeah. we see anything.
1: Um no that's probably the biggest one i think of um i had one the other day it was so good (laughs) not to mean that you know not to think that it's going to be so good here but it as a winemaker it definitely makes you wonder so I'll, i'll be curious to see what rob does with it and he's got some other cool italians there so he'd be a good person to make the first go at it um that'd be the only thing i'll throw out there right now
0: okay so what are you planting at the college
1: Uh, So right now we have eight acres planted. Uh, The total will be 17 by 2021. That'll be all up online. Um, So we'll be planting every May until then, either two or three acre lots. So the eight varietals we have now, Negra Amaro, Viognier, Tempranillo, Malvasia, Barbera, Sangiovese, Alianico, and Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, So the idea is across those 17 acres we will have one acre plots of each of those Uh, and the idea is very much experimental, let's see what works, gather what information we we have and then let that information be a resource to the, the state and the industry. So be very transparent and hopefully in conjunction with that the industry provide information that they have on those varietals as well in different growing locations um, because we're in a very unique spot there at the college. We're kind of east facing hills. Um, We're not like most of the plantings in the Verde Valley. Verde Valley I think across the boards, it's all about microclimates where your specific site is so what really shines at the college is not necessarily going to work in Wilcox or Senoida or Elgin or Williams or Kingman or any of the other places that people are planting but if we kind of in conjunction with some of those people amass some data maybe we can draw some conclusions or help people out with their specific sites. and a way we're gonna do that is we're partnering with U of A to create the data repository and that's actually gonna live on their servers the Cowes College which is the College of Agriculture and Life Science. They've offered their server and to do the development for the data repository. And this will be any information that we can collect at the Southwest Wine Center or that we can get from the industry itself. And this will be completely available to the public. So that's kind of the third tier of of what we're doing at the college. We've got the vineyard, we've got the winery, and now we're also going to start the data repository.
0: What are the biggest challenges in the Verde Valley versus Wilcox, or have you, or is it too early to tell yet?
1: I don't have as much growing experience here, so I, I would let some of the people who do answer that question more directly. Uh, I know some sites, they really get hit with spring frost. You need to get up from the low-lying areas in the valley. Air drainage is important. Of course, some of the areas next to creeks and rivers are for marketing purposes and consumers. They love going there because they're really beautiful places. Right next to those places are not the best spots for vanilla. You need to get up just a little bit higher to get some better airflow, or to avoid at least the cold sinking air. Water availability is going to be a big challenge for future growth. Um, The people who have the water rights keep them and they'll plant. Finding new places that have that situation and the right soil is going to be tough and that will limit. The, the growth of how many acres will be, be planted in the Verde Valley. Hopefully, Cochise County or Santa Cruz County can provide more of the
0: fruit still. We'll see. We'll see what the market needs. Where else would you consider potentially growing in Arizona? I know there's been a lot of hullabaloo lately about growing up near Paulden and Chino Valley as well as near Williams and Kingman.
1: Yeah, people are talking about around Chino Valley. I believe it's the Williamson Valley area. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that anybody's been bold enough to put grapes
0: in the ground yet, as far as I know. Um, do you know of anybody? Rick Slodzen, I think that's his name. He's growing up in Polden for Del Rio Springs, but Airdis oh, okay. is making his fruit. Oh, right. Uh, I tasted his Pinot a while ago, and it was the best Arizona Pinot I've had. I was shocked. I had always heard that, oh, Pinot Noir, is not Arizona's grape, and then here's actually one reminiscent of a Burgundy. Hmm. It shocked me.
1: I have had them. I, I'm sorry, I forgot about them. They sh- they supported the Wine Center and came to the Gala this last um, last fall, which is nice of them. I don't know that area. I've never been to that vineyard. I I wonder about the same concerns. If they have good air drainage, uh, if they have availability to water, uh, and then just what their kind of temperature range is throughout the year. But there's some land there and it has been agriculture in the past, which is not unlike Cochise County was. So there's some possibility and it's a little bit closer to tourism and populace best of luck to people. It, it took pioneers to grow anywhere. It took pioneers to grow in Sonoida or Wilcox. It was just somebody who had a hunch and thought it would work, and they decided to put their time and money and effort into planting, and it turned out well. So good luck to those people. Uh, I know there's some people who have planted in, in Williams uh, at some colder sites, and then there's... A co- Do you know if they're growing vinifera there, or...? They're not. They're mostly hybrids. And then there's a couple people in uh, the Kingman area who have vines, and one of my students has uh, a vineyard in the White Mountains area, and uh, wow, what are they growing there? Uh, mostly hybrids, as well. Saval Blanc and Saval and Norton. Um, possibly some others. I'll I'll have to ask him. His name is Keith Moore. The Young area, um, they've been growing. There's one grower there that's been growing for a couple years.
0: What do you think the future of Arizona and wine is going to be like in, say, 15 years, 20 years?
1: Uh, Hopefully we'll continue to have a, a period of growth in every way in terms of more producers, being able to make more wine, more growth in the market, so a larger market share, but then also more growth in terms of quality and understanding. I hope the wine center will be at least a part of that. I feel even in the last five years that there has been a pretty substantial growth in terms of wine getting better, and I think people are figuring it out more. They've done it longer. Vines are more mature. They've been through a monsoon season, and growers know what to do or not do. So I really don't look at more producers as competition. I I think We have competition in other ways. Our our competition is really the markets that are large enough and established enough that they can really be competitive on price point. Um, They can deliver a wine to Safeway for 8 bucks that will be just fine with dinner and consumers will enjoy it. I don't know that right now we can compete with that market. We're very much a boutique, smaller producing type market, which is great. Hopefully we can get consumers on board with us or continue to. I think every day we have Arizona wine converts happening in tasting rooms around the state. So that's what I'd say. Hopefully we can continue to see,
0: continue to see growth. So second to the last question before we get into the wine and delve into the wine in detail and actually start drinking. Yay. Why did you choose the name Saculum? Um, I was pouring through my Latin dictionary a couple weeks ago and I thought that it's just such an interesting... Well,
1: the original idea was it was going to be a life-cycle approach to winemaking. People drink reds when it's cold. They drink whites when it's afternoon and it's warm outside and they're sitting on the porch. Um, That's a, a general comment. That's not the case across the boards but saculum means basically a a life cycle or a century which is a you know the equivalent of about a person's life i use the century plant as our logo um, but we wanted to have kind of a life cycle approach to winemaking where uh, maybe we would make a wine for spring specifically a blend that would kind of ring true to that time of year and maybe what people were cooking what was on the barbecue this was all the poetic first thoughts i was having in my mind as we were kind of creating this brand. That kind of took a side seat, and I just wanted to let the the wines shine through. Um, And then, like I said, I think I knew it was going to be kind of a special projects thing. People are are starting to recognize the brand now, which is kind of crazy. I never consciously thought about getting into people's minds,
0: which I probably should have a little bit more. Um, Well, it's definitely a happy accident. Right, right. when I had a friend of mine who's a priest came and blessed the apartment, I actually bought him a bottle of the Gallia's. Oh, really? Thanks, because he said, oh, I like Cab Franc, or he said, I like Cab Sauvignon. I'm like, well, okay. Well, let's let's throw in a little captronkin in the mix. <laughs> nice. And of course, you know, I realized later that's like the, the worst label possible to give to a priest, but <laughs> he he loved it. So. <laughs> the blessing still took place. Oh yeah. He didn't run away screaming, which is good. Good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well hopefully the wines speak for themselves. Scott Havis, who's a graphic design artist and he's worked with several of the wineries in the area. He said, you know, the label will sell the first one. The wine will sell the bottles after that. So hopefully the wine will, will continue to sell um, based on the quality of the wine, not on the labels.
0: Um. Well, I've already mentioned, well, to you directly that your Moscato is the only Moscato I've ever had that I actually liked. So yeah, it worked for me. I refer to that as my FU wine because it, it really pisses
1: people off on both ends of the spectrum. <laughs> 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 either, either they say, it's Moscato, don't pour that in my glass, and I don't want anything to do with it. Or they want it because it's Moscato, and it's not the Moscato they're looking for. So I really tick both of those check boxes.
0: Um. Are you planning on making more like that with that Moscato, or oh, was that a one-off? Right.
1: No, uh, no, I'll, I'll make it every year. Um. Yes. I mean, my intention there is to just push the aromatics, um, retain acidity, make it nice and food-friendly. So it's still pretty. It's, it's in line with like a Malvasia Bianca with just a different kind of flavor profile, but it's not that Moscato that other people expect. I almost feel as if I would if I would have given it some proprietary name, I might have had a better chance at getting consumers to understand it, because then they would have just tried it and liked it. But when you put Moscato on there, regardless of whether you like it or not,
0: you're, you're going to create some sort of judgment on it before you even try it. Which is interesting, because it forces people to rethink their judgment once they've tried it, um, whether for good or ill. I mean, it definitely changed mine. Hooray. So. Or, or it'll just piss him off. And <laughs> I don't know. Which, which can also be kind of fun, yeah. uh, you know, some of the time. Actually this leads to another tangent question, I'm terribly sorry, I know I said there was only one left. Arizona Rosé, what's your take on the increasing movement for Rosé in Arizona? I've had
1: some good ones. Grenache does...
0: made a good one, too.
1: Oh, thank you. Uh, Grenache does well. Um, we did some Sanjo uh, rosés at Arizona Stronghold that I was really proud of. Even a Syrah rosé. Um, we did both the Sanjo and the Syrah as a Sanje style, so uh, red fruit distemmed and allowed to macerate overnight and then bled off into tank. The Sanjo was great. Grenache is cool. Dos basis does a, a really cool, very drinkable rosé. I think it's we can make awesome wines. That's That's not... Um, the question is whether consumers will will go for them and go for them at the price point that we can offer them. And in time, I think they will. Uh, I've chosen not to make a rosé for the last three years. Um just Why is cause, that? Because I'd rather make red wine. If the fruit comes in and it's nice, I, I'm not going to put it to the press. I, I just I drink reds far more often than I drink rosés, and the reds sell better. It's tough. I, you work in a tasting room. I don't work directly in a tasting room, but I find that it's tough to get consumers to go for the rosé. It,
0: it, it, it is some of the time, but um, I've noticed that a lot of the people who know Arizona wine will instantly go, Oh, you have a rosé. I want to try that. Throw that on my flight, simply because the, there does seem to be this knowledge or at least it seems to be public conscious that Arizona's doing good rosé. Mm. Nice to counterbalance the evil that was white Zinfandel, of course. Sure. Um, friends don't let friends drink white Zinfandel. <laughs>
1: no. <laughs> and it might be that we're just finally getting away from that, and people are like, hey, this, this might be a cool new thing, uh, something exciting and not white Zin. So I'm down to try rosé.
0: So last question. I asked this to everybody. So Yes, it's a silly question. I give that full proviso. If you were a grape, what grape would you be and why? thinking of how they
1: grow not not necessarily the essence that's a great in, way to, in, in, to approach it though yeah um maybe cab salve nice loose berries you know small berries loose clusters um, hidden inside of a dark canopy dense canopy um at the wrong picked at the wrong time can be overly tannic and vegetal and mm-hmm. not right but at the right time can be very beautiful and structured there we go that was my answer
0: there we go so <laughs> let's drink the wine so the sorol is pretty dark, but it's still, you know, as you said, it's co-roti style, co-ferment. That does have the ability to
1: add more color to to a wine, believe it or not. Um, you end up with polymerization of white phenolics and red phenolics that stabilized color. Um, hopefully you can have a nice low pH that keeps the anthocyanin at its kind of colored form. So I actually find that sometimes co-ferments tend to be nice and dark um,
0: as a Surprise.
1: Um, very much a, a food friendly wine. The acid kind of comes through on the finish, I find. Pretty nose. Yeah, the nose is
0: just phenomenal. All sorts of, you get the floral elements of the Viognier working with the spice and the dark fruit of that Syrah, which just is quite lovely. <laughs> when was the uh, harvest date for this? I do um, you remember?
1: It would have been kind of first week in. September approximately. Vionier is not the first white to come off. Syrah Syrah's closer towards the first red to come off. Shannon is usually
0: the first white, right?
1: Um, in that area, yes. Um, specifically at the Fort Bowie site, just because it's a warmer site than uh, the Wilcox Bench area. We tend to
0: see Sable Blanc come off. Um, Merlot will be the first red. Gosh, those Merlot grapes that we pressed at Passion last year from Rolling View were just some of the most beautiful grapes I've ever seen. It was amazing.
1: Yeah, Merlot does well. People are surprised by that. Um, I don't know if it's the clone we have or what, but every year we've had it, I've been happy with it. I always wish I had more. So,
0: What's, what's the clone, if I may ask?
1: Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, I, I, not off the top of my head, at least. We, we probably have it on our vineyard map, but it does well. And the Cabernet Franc does well. I know we have Cabernet Franc. Also, Cimarron has some Franc planted anybody else does so what would
0: you pair with this
1: with the smokiness uh, any sort of kind of light barbecue like chicken barbecue or something you know the the delicate chicken would go with kind of the delicate uh, aromatics but then it would still have the smokiness from being barbecued something along the lines of that i'd say how about you
0: i was thinking really nice smoked pork ribs myself hmm a little bit darker than the chicken, but you know, still has, when done right, that delicate quality. Sure. Um, a little bit more robust flavor it might overwhelm it a little bit, but and then again, also, that's partly all in the sauce, too. Mm-hmm. And if you do it just mesquite smoked, in, no sauce, just a little bit of rub, it could be fantastic. So is there anything else that you want to particularly tell us about the One Stone Syrah? And so
1: this was not necessarily a planned wine. Like I said, it was uh, more, we were going to do a Viognier. Let's see what we have. Well, we don't have enough for a barrel, so let's do the whole two birds, one stone type of thing. In thirteen, we went ahead and did a single varietal Syrah. We did not co-ferment the Viognier. Um, we actually did full ML, um, full malic, and it's available as uh, an unfiltered, un- unfined white. Um, in fourteen, this last vintage, we did a Viognier same in the same style, and we also are now revisiting the One Stone, so there will be a twenty fourteen version as well.
0: Oh, fantastic! Are you planning on co-fermenting with any of the other whites or possibly reds on site?
1: Um, we did Malvasia. We did a co-ferment with Syrah and Malvasia at Arizona Stronghold in twenty ten, and it turned out pretty cool. So that mm-hmm. might be if we can get them off at the same time. That might be a cool option. Excellent.
0: Well, thank you very very much for coming. Yeah, um, thank you. We're going to be drinking this for a while, but the rest of you guys, we're going to leave you. Um, where can we find uh, bottles of One Stone? Uh,
1: One Stone's available at 4 Wine Wineworks in Clarkdale and at our tasting room in Wilcox.
0: How much per bottle? 34 it's Not a bad price for an Arizona Co-ferment. I like that. Yeah. Well, thank you very, very much, Michael, being able to come out here and hang out today while we drink. Yeah, thank great you. Great having you. Thank you. Until next time in our next podcast, uh, this is Cody signing off.